it's some really cool graffiti. I, yeah. I want to hear what artists they got to come out here and do this. Space Banksy. Yeah, Space Spanksy. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Death Watch, a serial watchcast about Disney's Star Wars The Mandalorian. I'm Mike Bennett. And I'm Chris Skull. Today, we'll be talking about Season 2, What What? Episode 1, entitled Chapter 9, The Marshal. This episode was both written and directed by series creator John Favreau. Chris, why don't you give us a recap of Season 1? Yeah, definitely. Uh, season 1, this episode opens up with a lot of dialogue between everyone that we've seen in season one. It starts off with the armor talking about walking the way of Mandalore, how you were both hunter and prey. I feel like this is a theme for our protagonist, the Mandalorian, not just for his story thus far, but for this new chapter that we're finding ourselves in. Uh, we hear Grief Karga's There Is One Job, how, he's, how this whole story for the Mandalorian started. He took some high-value target, and he went off with it. The this is no life for a kid. He he pleads. He thinks to himself that this journey is very dangerous for his his new charge. We're reminded by Quill's words: "None will be free until the old ways are gone forever." And the old ways. He we cut straight to this character Moff Gideon, this new dangerous villain who we know nothing about. But hopefully, in season two, we'll definitely for sure see a lot more more of him. The uh, armor concludes. One of the last things she says to him is that the songs of eons past that were involved with the Mandalore versus Jedi, a race of space wizards, essentially. <laughs> so sorcerers. he's now sorcerers. There you go. And now, and she reminds him that secrecy is our survival. So I feel like that's also a theme, not just of Mando's new charge of protecting the child, but also the uh, difficulty, the challenges that he's going to face regarding other Mandalorians. If he's going to need help, he's going to need to find others of his creed. But unfortunately, as the man, as the armorer reminds us that secrecy being their survival, he may not find any immediately. Well, let's uh, go ahead and dive into this week's episode. It is a long one. The episode ran for 55 minutes compared to a season one average of like 32, 33 minutes. So they packed a lot of stuff into this episode. So let's get down to business. So the show opens like the trailers. A lot of the trailers opened with the the dramatic scene of Mando walking under the street light, the street lamp, which, you know, maybe I could, I could hear journey playing in the background. <laughs> street lights, people. Okay. I'm gonna stop. That, that was great, man. No, way better. Thank I did try. I intentionally didn't make an effort at that, um, but <laughs> it's you. a great, you know, dramatic scene. He walks out of the shadows into the light and back into the shadows. Again, they're walking down this alley. That's been all graffitied up and it's some really cool graffiti. I, yeah. I want to hear what artists they got to, come out here and do this space banksy yes space spanksy so we we see a lot of anti anti empire spanksy work totally i did not i didn't see anybody (laughs) holding bananas uh as guns but um (laughs) i saw um there's like caricatures of stormtroopers yeah but i'm pretty sure i saw like a would look like a c3po reference yeah i saw the same like golden droid head so yeah. 
would be cool to find out. I bet there's a lot of Easter eggs buried in there if we go back and spend hours looking at that three minute, three seconds of, <laughs> of footage. So Mando rolls up to like a an underground club entrance. There's a Twi'lek bouncer there played by a voice actor, Isaac Singleton. He's done a lot of, of voice acting and he has a, a great deep voice and he just asks why he's here. He says he's here to see Gore Koresh, which is a new character to us, but he lets, uh, after a, an odd glance down at the child, he lets both Mando and the child into this building. We find out is the, the WWE wrestling match <laughs> we saw in the trailer with the two Gamorians fighting with, uh, like vibro axes up uh, in a ring. And they keep going at each other. These Gamorians are like sickly looking to like from what we've seen in the past, they're usually like really fat. They're burlier. Yeah. And these maybe guys not are sickly. Maybe they're just, they're just leaner for their, for their fights. Could be. Doesn't look like they're lean in a good way though. But in mm-hmm. any case, there they are up there fighting. Mando sits down next to a Cyclops, which I'm, I'm not sure we've seen before in star Wars. We have actually, I mean, super, super quick, uh, the the species is called the Abyssin. Mm-hmm. We actually see them in the cantina back in A New Hope. Okay, um, but we don't see them very. We we don't see them a lot in the movies. Gotcha. So Mando sits down with him, begins to chat. This uh, Gore Koresh is played by John Leguizamo. He plays the his probably most known notable role is as Toulouse Lautrec in, in Moulin Rouge. Um, and he plays uh, Luigi in the Mario Brothers movies. That you know, fan favorites, of course. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah no. I, he was also in another movie, which I would have re- recommend that he starred with John Favreau, who also directed that movie. It was called Chef. Huh. Um, he he basically helps out a buddy of his in a in a food truck. Um, simple premise, but it's a it was actually a pretty fun movie. Yeah, it sounds riveting. Yeah, it does. So um, afterward, he begins to chat with this Abyssin named Gor Koresh, and he's. He's asking him for the locations of, of Mandalorians. He seems to know where they might be. Um, and, uh, you know, it becomes pretty quick, quickly obvious that this guy is not really a, a good guy. He's not going to be super helpful. He, as he's talking further with Mando, he, he decides to, um, make a wager on the battle that's happening in the ring that if, you know, the one guy wins, Mando gives him his armor. And if the other guy wins, he'll give him what he's looking for. Mando has a great line. He's like, I don't, I don't, I don't bet. He's like, I'm not a gambler. Mm-mm. And, um, which is good because, um, he fixed the, <laughs> the issue and he pulls out his blaster <laughs> and kills one of the Gamorreans <laughs> to make well, sure his guy go. wins. And, uh, immediately the, the crew of guys around him all, pull out their blasters and they're aiming them at Mando's head. Yeah. This course guy, uh, we finally find out why he's apparently he has a reputation of knowing where the Mandalorian is. Mandalorians are rather, um, he reveals to us that he likes their precious shiny shells. So he actually hunts down the Mandalorians. Yeah. He's a Mando hunter. Yeah. That's not cool, man. Nope. So it's not cool. We, we get, uh, Immediately, we get the our favorite scene from the trailers with Mando popping out his whistling birds, and uh, and the child sees it, leans forward, and, and pops close his his uh, pram, and all of his you know his his missiles fly out and take out a bunch of the guys, and uh, 
a few more come off up from off screen to fight Mando as Korgoresh kind of like kind of slowly like he's like <laughs> he walking away. like a gorilla off <laughs> off into the distance. Um, we get a cool little battle scene with a couple of guys who were probably waiting to fight in the ring, but they come at him with knives, and Mando takes out the last guy with his, pulls out a knife out of his belt and flings it kind of a no look fling. It hits a an Iridonian guy in the chest. Um, I don't and, think it was. Uh, he pulled. It's weird. It was more like a hidden blade, like he had like in up his sleeve or something. Yeah, it was very uh very much like Assassin's Creed. Yep, it's uh. It was great. So, um, that's the end of of the 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 group inside the ring. He, he Mando hunts down uh, Koresh, who's just barely gotten outside of the, the 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 area. He's still in the alley with the graffiti. Mando flings his his grappling hook around his feet and th- throws him up over a, a streetlight and uh, and hangs him up. He's hanging there, and Mando's like, "Look, I'm not going to kill you." I promise you will not die by my hand. Just very, uh, that's a very foreshadowing. The way he says that, you're like, yeah, okay, but so how are you going to kill him? (laughs) (laughs) He, uh, he gets out of him that he's seen uh, a Mandalorian or he's heard of a Mandalorian on Tatooine. Mando questions it. He's like, I've been to to Tatooine all the time. I've, I've never seen one there. He's like, he's, he's in Moss Palco which is mm-hmm. not a term we've ever heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, it does make it seem like the word Moss is, has something to do with a town or like, uh, I don't know. But, yeah. I never understood that. Like how there's places like St. Louis, St. Augustine, right. You know, Moss Isley, Moss Palgo could be yeah. St. Saint I- Saint Isley, St. Palgo. <laughs> Maybe. Could be. So he's, uh, you know, he gets the information he needs and, True to his word, he doesn't kill him. He just walks away from him as he hangs from the streetlight. And uh, we we neglected to mention on the way in the we get one of those scenes where we're at eye level with the child and seeing what he's seeing, which is a bunch mm-hmm. of red eyes hanging lurking in the shadows that clearly look like some kind of wolf or you know terrifying creature that make him uncomfortable. And as Mando is walking away, those eyes start to light up and he shoots the streetlight and puts Koresh in a, a, a darkness that allows the, the wolves to get closer to him and obviously take him out as we dinner time. fade to the opening credits of the Mandalorian. So it's a great quick intro back into Mando's uh, ability to, to get the information he needs. So we follow him back to Tatooine. We're here again. We were here in season one. We again land in Bay 35 and we get uh, back to our favorite character, Pelly, who <laughs> is uh, surprised but not surprised to see Mando again, played by, uh, again, by Amy Sedaris. Does a, I, I love how she brings this character to life. And yeah, uh, she, she has a very uh, look what the womp rat dragged in. Kind totally. Of, kind of look on her face. Yeah. Like a, a, a judgmental mother look. Like, <laughs> can't believe it. And uh, the pit droids pop up and they start to walk towards the ship. And she's like, look, no, 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 he doesn't like droids. Stay away. And we see Mando's progression, at least in one area of his life. He's like, nah, mm-hmm. get, let, the, let the droids take a look. It needs a good once over. So we see him kind of loosening his his hatred towards droids. And uh, they begin to give it a once over. I think we can we can thank IG-11 for that. 
Yeah. So who says think the force? Is that she the, does? Yeah. She does. Like when um he he pulls up and he uh cuts her off midway, he like throws his satchel around to to the front and the child is is in it. She takes a looks at she takes a look at him and she goes And this is actually the first time the term force has actually been name dropped in the entire series. They they sort of tease it when they talk about moving things with their mind or or Quill talks about things that he's seen in his oh. time and during the Empire. But that's the interesting. Actual, yeah, the actual term, the force is the first time we're hearing it. Yeah. And then uh, she jokes, she's like, huh, looks like it remembers me. How much do you want for it? Just kidding, but not really. <laughs> yeah, she's literally all of us. Yeah, we're like, we please, please let us have the child. That's all we want. <laughs> and uh, so he begins, he's, he tells her why he's here. He's looking for a Mandalorian. She's like, look, you're the only Mandalorian I've ever seen on Tatooine. He's like, well, I've been told that there's one in Mos Pelgo. Can you tell me how to get there? She's like, oof, um, I, I don't think you want to go there. She pulls over and we get this great callback to the original movie uh, trilogy series. She calls mm-hmm. over one of her droids, which is the R5 D4 unit from the sand crawler that sold R2 and C3PO to, to Lars and Luke. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's, they have like, uh, one of the access hatches on his head where his bad motivator, um, exploded before he, yeah you, uh, yeah you can still see uh the scoring like the heat scoring on on the top of his head right like where they almost like welded it back into place or something like that mm-hmm. and i think it's canon that that was intentional that yes. when r2 was on the sand crawler and they were you know coming out he's like look i have i can save the universe essentially <laughs> um i need to get to these people I can't stay on this sand crawler. So yeah, if they I just pick you, need you to kill yourself. Yeah. If they pick you, you need to, you need to throw the match because I need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he does that. So you can, you can, we owe it to R5 for, for saving the universe, for saving the universe because if R2 had stayed on that sand crawler ship for another day, he would have been taken by the stormtroopers who blew it up a couple hours later. Oof. So, um, he comes out and, and does a little, the force or holographic projection of Tatooine. She shows him where Mos Eisley is and then scans down to like an area on the map that has nothing on it. And she's like, this is where Mos Pelgo was. It was a little mining outpost a while ago and it got destroyed. And, um, she's like, there's, there's nothing there. Uh, and I, I find it kind of funny that, she, that, this outpost is so secretive in general. Like mm-hmm. she thinks there's nothing there and we find out there's a lot more going on there than. Well, it was a small much. town. I mean, yeah, I think it was more like one of those things that just sort of get lost in history. She herself said, I, I rarely, uh, it was like prone to bandits and stuff like that. And yeah. She's never left the walls of Moss Eisley. And yeah. if you're in a deserted planet, a literal desert planet like Tatooine. Yeah. It's safer just to stay inside the city walls and outside of it. So, yeah. So um, he's like, well, I got to go. So do you, do you still have that speeder bike? Can I have it back? Which is, you know, the one. Call, back, he, to, yeah, call he, back to the gunslinger episode. Yeah, when he brought it back from, uh, you know, chasing down Toro. So he he speeds off. He's, he brings the child with him. And uh, 
another great shot of the the child's ears flapping in the wind like a dog <laughs> sticking his head out the window <laughs> i love that scene yeah um and he he camps with tuscan raiders again like it's kind of interesting how we see that he's like really you know he has a relationship with these people he, mm-hmm. he knows them more than just like when we saw him in gunslinger we sort of assumed okay he generally knows how to do some kind of hand gestures and communicate generally but um, the more this episode goes on, we see that like he seems to have like a connection with these people. Yeah, or or at least he's very familiar with their culture and with their ways, and that becomes a major theme in this episode. Yeah, and so they filmed this area in in Death Valley National Park in California. Yeah, the original uh, series they actually filmed it in all the Tatooine scenes. They filmed it in Tunisia, and uh, a lot of the even uh, the Skywalker homestead. Um, the structures that they have, they're still standing in Tunisia. But for the purpose of the Mandalorian, um, almost everything was filmed indoors in their big, you know, LED screen dome. But for all the exterior desert shots, uh, they filmed it in Death Valley National Park. Yeah. So, and I think the fact that he has this sort of like almost two day trip out to where he's going shows how mm-hmm. far Moss Pelgo is from at least Moss Eisley. So it is it is out of the way. So it does make sense that Pelly mm-hmm. doesn't know much about it. So he kind of uh slowly rides into town, almost just casually floating. Um, very, you know, old western cowboy scene. The like, you know, the I don't know if you know this, when they filmed those movies, they didn't build full towns, they just made like the storefront of the building and it just had like braces behind it holding up <laughs> that front wall like they weren't actually buildings just to like frame the alley or this like the main street it, it kind of feels like that just a, a dusty road down the middle of you know 10 or 12 buildings on either side and uh you know so he rolls into town he, he finds he's looking kind of left and right seeing some people the townspeople who are working but you know, looking over to see a stranger in town, which is not very common. We see Sam Whitmer, who's one of the townspeople. He's rolling a, a trolley full of boxes. Uh, Sam Whitmer is the voice of Darth Maul in uh, all of uh, the animated series, Clone Wars, Rebels, the video games. Mm-hmm. Um, he has the great Kenobi line <laughs> that I know that voice. There was actually a, a he was uh, live streaming um, someone playing the new uh, Star Wars Squadrons game. Oh, I and the did voice see actor, that. the voice actor who plays one of the characters is the same voice actor as uh, uh, Obi Wan Kenobi in the Clone Wars series. And so you see Sam Whitmer looking at us like, and he goes into the Darth the Darth Marvels. I know that voice. <laughs> I know you, General Kenobi. I love it. Yeah, it was great. Um, so again, this is another like, uh, voice actor. We saw the, the voice of Anakin who played the, uh, New Republic soldier on the prison ship. And now we have Sam Whitmer playing this, uh, townsperson. So it's, it's cool to see those little people who are part of the Star Wars universe get pulled into other productions. Um, Mando rolls up to the local saloon. There's no saloon doors. So he doesn't get to, uh, bust them open and have them, you know, <laughs> swing back and forth, but. We do get a similar shot to from the like the first ep- episode where he's at the other uh, cantina where you get a just a framed shot of him standing with the bright light behind him. Um, he walks into what is an empty saloon, um, <laughs> uh, run by uh, 
a species we're familiar with from the Clone Wars series, who's uh, the same species as um, Hondo Onaka, the, the Weequay is their species. Yeah. They have the like yeah, kind of, of cr- crenellated skin, yeah, face pattern. Um, so it's kind of cool to see this guy back. He begins to talk to him. He's like, "I'm I'm looking for someone who." is a, a Mandalorian. He's like, well, what's that? He's like, well, they look like me. He's like, oh, you mean the Marshal? Not, you know, he's not surprised that he's definitely seen someone who looks like Mando. And as he says it, we, he points over again to the doorway and uh, we see Bubba Fett's armor standing in the doorway, um, <laughs> worn by someone wearing like a, a, a red velvet uh, top <laughs> And I mean, like, I think some people have said, oh, wow, I can't believe Boba Fett's there. I didn't think for a second that this was mm-hmm. Boba Fett. I, I did agree. We knew that it was going to make a cameo or, or his armor or something. Yeah. In some, but like when you saw that, it was seemed too loose fitting. Yeah. It was, it was still kind of like straggly. It's like me wearing your armor and just like, <laughs> and for those who don't know us personally, I'm six and a half feet tall and Chris is not. And so, um, <laughs> You know, it it just it would look funky for you know on on someone else other than Boba, and that's kind of the the look we get here. But it's got the same details, you know, the like mm-hmm. kind of light orangish uh, pauldrons. It has that like cut in LED screen on the front. We're not sure what that does, but and he's got the helmet with the antenna sticking out. So um, it it does look a little bit worse for the wear than the last mm-hmm. time we saw it. But even in Return of the Jedi, it was pretty. Uh, beat up armor it wasn't like clean by any means and uh you know the guy in the armor walks in starts to talk to him asks uh the weak way for two shots of spotchka we get a little two equals two snorts of spot two snorts of spotchka which not sure what a snort is but whatever there it is evidently space shot yep and um and we we get the the glass of the blue liquid that we got from you know sorghum i think it would be it would be too impossible for this little tiny krill village to be shipping spotchka out to the middle of nowhere on tattooing but i mean if they did that's one way to corner the market man yeah it's everybody uh, loves their their shrimp liquor yeah it's like johnny walker blue it's like this hundred year old malted liquor yeah impossible to get uh, it'd be great to find out. So he grabs the he grabs the spotchka, goes over and sits down, and he takes off his helmet. And Mando's like, "Wait, like he's he's like he's jarred for a moment because obviously yeah. he's been trained his entire life. The moment you put your helmet on, you never take it off in front of another person. And so it also seems clear to him that this guy is not a Mandalorian. I mean, as if he didn't know, and we didn't know the way that he spoke." even kind of uh uh gave us the the impression that this wasn't a mandalorian that we're that we're dealing with i mean his his speech was a little unrefined he was a little too casual he had a, like a swagger to him and like it's very not like any of the other members that we've seen before in the in the covert he does have a very like old western sheriff like mm-hmm. cool guy in town like well, let's so he brings mando over for a seat takes his helmet off and we see actor timothy oliphant 
Emmy-nominated actor Timmy Timothy Oliphant. Yeah, you know he's famous for Deadwood, Justified, Fargo. You know he's also he's also in The Office. I think he had all these. He was a lot of the actors of who had these yeah. great like, um, like serious character roles, and mm-hmm. they try to get on The Office to do something a little bit lighter for their <laughs> repertoire. And it is interesting because in this character. Um, who he, so he introduces himself as Cobb Vanth, who we, we heard in some teasers earlier. But in this character of Cobb Vanth, he has the kind of seriousness of his characters from Deadwood and Justified and Fargo and also the like lighthearted humor that he put on screen in the office. So it's cool to see it there. Um, but he notices or just he, he believes that he's met a real Mandalorian in Mando and, um, he, he what, what's his line here he's like so i figure only one of us walking out of here yeah he acknowledges that uh he knows he kind of has an idea of why mando's here but then he he has a change of heart as he's talking to him he says well i think he might be different um because he brought the kid right and you see the child playing around with a bucket of like a, a spittoon, spittoon apparently <laughs> yeah <laughs> which was- is not, not where the child should be but okay um, there's a detail here that I really liked when he, when he takes off his helmet. Well, two details. When he takes off the helmet, Mando's walking up to him and then just stops like mid stride. You know, the moment that Cobb Vance takes off the helmet, you know, that's a big uh, moment. And then two, when he puts it down, we have a close up of the helmet. It definitely is Boba Fett's helmet with the iconic dent that we see on the left side of, of it. Um, uh, but then you can also see the paint has almost completely worn off of it down to the actual steel. So that's a testament to the to the strength of the Beskar. You know, the the last time we saw this armor, it was falling into the mouth of a Sarlacc monster. Mm-hmm. So there's it obviously got swallowed at some point and that probably lends to the fact of of why it is worn down, but we're about to find out more about it, but before um, as they're discussing whether or not they're going to uh, have a shootout and kill one one another, that there's like a an earthquake and Cobb runs out to the entrance of the of the saloon to see this like uh it it's hard to describe but this is like a wave rolling through the center of town in the sand. You can tell that it's uh. In an animal or something alive of some kind rolling under the city. Um, and it goes to the outskirts of town and we, we are introduced to the first live screen, live action version of a crate dragon bursts through the ground and eats a bantha, which is tied up, uh, at a, a, a watering hole outside of town. And, um, so. The, this is a crate dragon has was first introduced into the Star Wars universe in the Kotor video games, Knights of the Old Republic. Um, we'll talk about it more in, in a bit, but it, it's cool to see some of these like uh, extra story um, things brought into into this series. It's it's really cool. Yeah, this scene went. It, it took a drastic change in thirty seconds. It went from like quick draw style Western to a scene out of Twister with like the windmill and everything shaking Yeah. to all of a sudden it became like we went from John Wayne to Jaws real quick 
Yeah, <laughs> I like that. The uh, John Wayne and Jaws in the same movie. And I and I want to comment how the uh, how San Jaws over here was very polite enough to actually go down the street as opposed to just like cutting straight through the village in which it, it potentially could have was really just to make a beeline for the Banthas. Very, very really polite. nice of them. Yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure it looked both ways before it crossed the street. Yep. Um, so uh, basically. And, you know, everyone starts to pull all of the things to, back together that that were falling apart. Banth starts to talk to Mando about what's going on, tells him that that's a crate dragon. Um, and they, they come to an agreement. He's like, look, I'll help you get rid of that dragon if you give me the armor back. Because, you know, they, they circle around it a bit, but he's like, that armor belongs to Mandalorians. You're not a Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. And he's like, look, I get it. I'll give it to you. And... And then we get a little bit more um, backstory. Uh, Cobb tells him about how he got the armor. He was, so let's see, after the empire was destroyed, like moments after the empire, the Death Star was was destroyed. They have this like cool. The second time. Yeah, this, the second one. <laughs> um, the one without the, the, the two millimeter or two meter Exhaust wide. Port. <laughs> yeah. Um, they like, they're watching the hologram of it exploding in this, in the same saloon and in come members of the mining guild nearby and they, they assert their dominance. He talks about how like power is a vacuum. And once the empire was, was dead, these guys come in to fill the same kind of power void. And um, as he is leaving, what happens? How does he get trapped again? So he 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 runs down. Out, he runs out with Weequay, the the bartender. Yeah, and he and, he uh, grabs a Comtono from the mining guild's like ship outside, and 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 he leaves town. He realizes later that he's grabbed a Comtono full of like really valuable jewels, mm-hmm. um, and he's about to die in the desert when he get they he gets found by a group of Jawas who take him in. He gives them his Comtono of jewels, and as a trade, he sees on the wall of their sandcrawler Boba Fett's armor. It's like tied up yeah. in the wall, and he's like, "I want that." Just, just for reference, this this scene, uh, the the events that we're seeing takes place five years after the Return of the Jedi. So, if the Jawas, he didn't like steal it or anything, and and keep in mind, this is his version of the story. Sure, but if what he says is true that that means the Jawas have had it at most for four to five years at least. Yeah. And so, and we don't really know, you know, how long it was before the armor itself or Boba Fett with it uh, emerged from the Sarlacc monster. So, you know, it's not been here long, but it, it could have been with them for a couple of years, depending on when they found it. And um, so he, he makes this trade for the, with the jewels for the armor and he comes back to Mos Pelgo wearing the Mandalorian armor comes into this to the saloon and in a quick shootout takes out the mining guild and and frees the town from their control and uh and makes them a free town so and he, basically becomes the sheriff yeah he becomes the sheriff which is how he gets his name the marshal which is also the, the namesake of this chapter I found this scene really cool how he's having this flashback as they're both riding out we see a parallel to the beginning where Bando's riding his speeder, but then uh, Cobb Vanth rides up next to him in like a modified speeder that's like hooked up with a 
with a pod race engine and and I was freaking out because I'm like, oh my God, I know that. That's that's Anakin's this is awesome. But I, I dug into it and um it's very possible that's not literally Anakin's because this actually takes place 41 years after the Bunta Eve classic. Sure. So I think um the company that made it, they they produced more. And it's very possible that that style of engine just got made popular because huh. of Anakin Skywalker's win. And and then I double check, you know, those cross section books that we've talked about before. Yeah, I've actually got one for Episode One, and um, Anakin's pod race engines had these distinct uh, yellow and blue scheme to them with some paint, you know, like uh, yeah. some some markings on it. This one had the yellow, but there were no, there was none of the blue markings. Mm, okay, so you know, it may not have, could have exactly been repainted been. in the last forty one years. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I I always thought that his pod racer was like a custom build, but you're saying it was kind of- it. Well, it was customized, um, but like the bulk of it was what that's a similar look to how they were to how they were produced. Gotcha. I thought he just kind of like invented ha- this model nah. like from from scrap. Nah, he wasn't that good. I mean, he was good, but he wasn't that good. Sure. Okay. But anyway, it was it was pretty crazy to to see like that he converted this pod racer engine and i i totally thought and i'm still gonna believe personally that it's anakin's one of anakin's <laughs> pod racer engines for uh, personally i think pod racing would have been really cool if they all looked like this instead yeah just a single engine with a yeah with the cockpit tied to the side like to me this is cute anakin's now this is pod racing now this is pod racing um what's the what's the line he says here is like both suns shine on a womp rat's tail I feel like that's that's their version of the broken clock is right twice a day or something like that. Yeah, I'm it's, not, it's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> uh, it's great. So, you know, we, we get the end of this description of how he came to get the the armor. They they're headed out on their um, on their speeder bikes and pod racer engine because Cobb Vanth knows where the dragon lives. So he's going to show Mando where it's at so they can kind of plan out how to, how to take it out. And, um, they're kind of rolling through some canyons and, um, you start to hear like a growling, um, happening and they, they pause and Mando gets off his bike and then he starts speaking Tuscan. Well, first, uh, first these, these creatures come out of nowhere. He starts hearing, here's a growling. And then this dino pit bull, shows up bearing its teeth and then more a pack of it show up we we find out that they're called um massives okay uh so they're like a, they're creatures you know some you know of course they're they're found in the wild but they're they're domesticated yeah very similar to how we use uh dogs as either for sentries for guard dog, for guard duty or even for for combat yeah so they look kind of like um the the beasts that Oh, man, they look like the beasts that the orcs ride in the second Lord of the Rings <laughs> film. But I wouldn't get it. But you wouldn't get it. I wouldn't understand that reference. Yeah, um, but there it is. There um, is. And and so they they kind of the dogs are are kind of closing in on them, and then Mando gets off and starts to talk to them in Tuscan, and yeah. um, and as he says that, they kind of like stand down. And from behind like a, a canyon wall, some Tuscan Raiders walk out and they start having a whole conversation. Cobb is like immediately like he's alarmed and like kind of reaches for his gun and he obviously has a, 
a bad relationship with the Tuscan Raiders because they've attacked his town for years. Um, and we, we get into that in a bit, but they are, um, Mando starts to talk to them and he turns to Cobb and he's like, these guys are trying to kill the, the crate dragon too. So we're, we have a common enemy, a common goal. So they, uh, they decide to head out together to go, um, to go find the dragon. But I guess before they do, why don't we take a quick break and uh, give you a chance to hear from our sponsors. This episode of Death Watch is also brought to you by Skull Squared Design Company. We're also huge fans of The Mandalorian, as well as Star Wars in general. And we wanted to share that love by making gifts for our fellow fans of Mando and the Child. Whether you wanted some flair while enjoying your favorite beverage in Oga's Cantina, or wanted to covertly show your support to the Resistance while exploring Batuu, we've got gifts for everybody. And not just Star Wars fans, but Marvel and Disney fans too. Check us out at SkullSquared.com or follow us on social media at SkullSquared. That's Skull with a C, as in, see y'all real soon. And we're back. So as they've grouped up with the Tusken Raiders, they've made camp for the night on their way to the Crate Dragon's uh, cave. Mando is speaking to them uh, in sign language. This is kind of the first time we've heard Tuscan Raiders speaking in anything other than like screaming. And so we, we mm-hmm. kind of like, I think we've always thought that they always speak that loud and that they're always kind of yelling, but their, their calm language is much like pithier. Girl. Yeah. It's a lot, you know, like kind of grunts and, and things mm-hmm. like that. It's it's kind of interesting to see their language in this, you know, context. Um, they and, and, and Mando's continuing to speak sign language to them. Also, I assume these characters, or at least one of them, is, is played by that same um, actor um, from the Gunslinger mm-hmm. episode, where he was signing back and forth to Mando. Um, and then the more they talk, eventually one of them takes up this interesting like melon type thing it looks like a a small black pumpkin and kind of like breaks his thumbs into the top and this like black mist kind of pops out (laughs) um doesn't look appetizing if i'm being Mm -hmm. honest not at all um but they're notoriously foul smelling too yeah uh but it seems like like it has literal literal stink lines are coming up (laughs) from the top of it yeah it 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 didn't look great Mm -hmm. um but it seems very culturally significant that he's doing this this is kind of like uh, you know, breaking bread at the beginning of a meal together. It's, it's symbolic of, of peace. He hands it to Cobb Vanth, who's not interested in partaking. And, you know, this is offensive. It, 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 and the, we know that the Raiders are very kind of, um, offended. Yeah. I mean, they're offended. The, the, their race of people is very, um, tied up in, you know, the, like the, how, how, what's the right way to say it? Like the, the process of things that they mm-hmm. they follow. The way they take care of their bandas. Yeah, almost like you know, apparently the, the town religious tradition. The town yeah, it's like you this can is see the way in the beginning, like picking the teeth of the bantha. Yeah, sponsored by Crest. <laughs> um, bantha clean, and uh, so they uh, they kind of get up uh, at arms at each other. The raiders get up and they're offended. Cobb jumps up and is kind of like barking back at them and turning to Mando like these guys are are uh 
you know, they've attacked my town. I don't like these guys. They don't like me. Like this is never going to, yeah. this is the never Raiders accuse them of stealing water. Yeah. You know, so because part of their, part of their belief system is that they're the ones that are native to Tatooine and that all the water is sacred and, and belongs to them by right. So there's definitely strong conflicts on both sides. Yeah. And uh, so that Mando gets up, breaks the tension, tells them, look, we're going to need to work together in order to do this. And uh, kind of the moment ends. We cut to the next morning. It's daytime. We're finishing the trip to the Crate Dragon. A cool little um, like uh, callback to the original trilogy when mm-hmm. Obi-Wan is talking about the Tusken Raiders and how they always travel single file to hide their numbers. You know, the, these Banthas are stacked up in a single line as they go to the cave. And, um, and when we get here, you know, this actual cave looks a fair amount like the one from the Knights of the Old Republic video game. It's this like cave in the background. It's kind of more of in a mountain than it was in the game. The game's also working with like 2004 video game graphics, um, on an Xbox. And it actually has been ported to your cell phone. And even though we're not sponsored by KOTOR, I do recommend that you spend whatever it is, the $10 or $20 to buy the, the emulation of the game on the iPhone. It's a, it's a great adaptation. It, it feels like the real game. Um, and, uh, and you can come explore some of these things that we've been talking about on the show. This episode of Death Watch has been sponsored by LucasArts. Oh, that'd be great. Yes. So um, they, they're coming up to this cave, you know, in, in the game, the the purpose that, we, you know, you play as the character Revan, he's there to kill this dragon because it's it's rumored that it has this pearl inside of it that can um, modify the powers of your lightsaber and make it stronger. And um, but what's interesting is um, the method of trapping and killing it in the video game is similar in concept to what we we ended up seeing here in the show as well um so they roll up to the cave mando's translating from the tuscans they're like it lives in an abandoned sarlacc pit and Cobb's like look i've lived on tatooine my whole life there's no such thing as an abandoned sarlacc pit he's like well there is if you eat the sarlacc which is (laughs) like pretty pretty crazy to give you context of how you know intense of a creature this crate dragon is i mean starlack pits are rumored to live over a millennia sometimes they have you know they they are kind of permanent creatures in in some ways and so the fact that this dragon can take it out is is pretty intense this also made me think if this dragon has eaten a sarlacc and taken over its pit that maybe this was the pit that um Jabba had fallen into and you know the dragon eating this monster mm. is what gave oh, yeah. him a way no even the boba fell into yeah that boba fell into sorry that, that gave him a, a way to get out because he was eating him you know it doesn't look like the same location from return of the jedi you know that sarlacc was in an open pit in the middle of the dune sea this is buried kind of in the base of the mountain yeah. but well tattooing is a big planet yeah. And, um, sarlaccs are far and few between, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's only too one. Few. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's, I, I like, this kind of reminds me of Qui-Gon, uh, Q, there's always a bigger fish quote. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so the, and to that end with the bigger fish, they start to kind of map out how to 
to take it out and they, they cr- kind of create a scale model of of the cave and they they put this um like skeleton piece of the crate dragon and Cobb's like whoa that's not to scale that's way too big because they have little tiny like dots around it that represent the people and the tuscans talk and mando translates back to him he's like it's to scale and <laughs> he's like i've only ever seen the neck and head i didn't think it was that big but um they they lure it out by bringing some raiders in. They they give it a a bantha to kind of um, to feed it. We actually learned that the Tuscans have been tracking the life of this dragon for centuries. Um, they know a lot about it, and they end up often feeding it to try to keep it asleep for longer so it doesn't leave its cave. Uh, so they they do know this beast well, and uh, as it comes out to eat the the bantha that they've feed um like left for it it actually goes and gets the tuscan raider who who brings it out there but it's this like this creature is is different than the one in the video game so that one looks a lot more like a kimono dragon with four legs and it it walks out like more like lizard like this is more like an eel like sand snake it, mm-hmm. it moves kind of like a whale in the ocean it's it's really interesting how it can just move through the sand like this we actually see a a scale of it a skeleton of it in a new hope in the beginning when c-3po is just wandering the desert you you see this long snake-like uh skeleton behind him and that's that's a crate dragon yeah um so we know that there's you know multiple of them obviously that skeleton seems to be a lot smaller than this one um that we're that we're tracking unless it's way in the, in the, the distance, but I think it was, you know, forced perspective. And yeah. Um, no, no play on words there with forced perspective. <laughs> um, <coughs> but me. thank you. So the, the dragon comes out and we see like in full form. Cause the last time we saw it in Mos Pelgo eating that Bantha, it was kind of like from Cloverfield where you can barely see the monster. Mm-hmm. It's way in the distance. It's covered in the dust cloud. Uh, but now we've seen it in a lot greater detail. It's this huge uh, beast and uh, it, it slides back into its cave. The, the group of them come up with a, a plan to, to kill it, but it's going to take the townspeople of Mos Pelgo. I like uh Amando. He, ter- he turns over to uh and he goes, and he like, he, he admits uh, you know, they're looking for some fresh ideas. <laughs> right. So like at the moment the guy gets eaten, they're like, uh, you know, the way we've been tracking it has not been working out. Exactly. So they, uh, you know, they agree that they're going to need the townspeople. They head back to Mos Palgo to pitch this to them. Um, they, they kind of lay load up the, all of the, like the, the town seems to have a lot of charges. My guess is mm-hmm. as a mining colony, they use these to like blast through the rock to yeah. get whatever kind of ore they've been mining. So they seem to have a lot of, of firepower as a, as a town. Um, but they, they load up their supplies and as they're finishing the Tuscan Raiders kind of roll up in their single file caravan of the Banthas and, and they kind of, help them finish loading there's this like tense moment where a a, a, ban- a raider almost drops one of the charges and they kind of uh bark at each other a little bit and Cobb stops and like steps in the middle he's like look we need to work together on this we can't fight and uh and then we cut to them leaving we can see the the caravan 
little montage of them going over the tops of the dunes as they head to the cave. So once they get there, we kind of, we hear the plan from Cobb and Mando. First, we bury the charges at the opening of the cave. Then we wake it up. We have to get it angry enough to charge. They're going to bury charges in the ground outside of its cave and try to lure it out from the cave to, you know, the, the Tuscans have told them its weak spot is the underbelly kind of behind the, the head. So they've, they need to get it quite a bit out of the cave before they can blow the charges. I would have loved to have seen the charges uh, buried a little closer to the cave, um, but I suppose <laughs> that, tor- that would not have where they actually the, are. Yeah. That would have not lent well to the drama of the moment, but Mm-mm. so they, are burying the charges out there. And once they're all set and they've also, they've set some like uh, some large spears tied to uh, wenches so that they can, as it comes out, the Raiders can um, lay into it and kind of pull it out themselves. So they send a, a group of, Raiders out there, three of them as sort of sacrificial lambs. Um, <laughs> I don't think I don't think that's what they told them. I don't think that's what they told them either. I would yeah, not yeah have go liked- out there and just you know call it out. Just do your little hur, 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 and you'll be fine. And in the meantime, they're like, "Well, there goes Jerry." Yeah. Well, two of them obviously looked around and said, "Well, at least we know this guy is slower than we are," <laughs> because they you know they do their classic. Tuscan call and you hear the dragon moving the ground shakes and they turn and run two of them make it the third guy does not the dragon comes out eats the guy and actually starts to retreat back into the cave and we get our second instance of the phrase uh dank ferric from the first episode we hear that from our guy horatio sands um and we, you know, at the time we thought it might have been a cultural term or something um, more specifically related to him, but it seems now that it's just more like a, a universal curse phrase. Um, so, and I maybe I should have censored that out when I said it because I don't actually know how bad of a phrase it is. <laughs> you, you may have insulted somebody's mother. Yes. <laughs> so Mando's like, look, we have to get it back out because actually Cobb goes to. He's like, oh, I'm going to blast the charge. You can try to get it. He's like, no, we need it further out. Tells all of the group to start, you know, shooting at it, getting it to get back out. Some of them throw charges at it. It gets irritated and it starts moving further out um, towards them. And that they actually, they can get some of their spears into it. A lot of them start pulling on it and then it, it rears back. And it sprays out this toxic <sighs> liquid, the greenish liquid. It just disintegrates anything it touches. If it wasn't bad enough that we have sand jaws, like the size of, uh, uh, what is that? What is that ancient shark called? Uh, the megalodon. You've got this giant sand megalodon that also spews, uh, acid bile at, at people as if it wasn't bad enough, man. Like what a way to go. He wasn't eaten. It wasn't eaten by it. He was, he was melted by its puke. Oof. And you know, it happens a couple of times here. And I feel like every time I kept looking at, I watched it over and over. I don't think any of the townspeople actually got hit by 
the the bile. It seemed like it was always it kept the Tuscan, Tuscan Raiders. Raiders. That's racist. Yeah. Well, and they kept getting eaten too. Like I, I feel like none of the townspeople died, and like thirty Tuscan Raiders died. Um, it was a rough moment for them. But mm-hmm. they, he, they, it rears back. It shoots this liquid. It gets a little bit further out, and finally gets over the charges. Cobb blows the charges directly under its weak spot. Kind of a huge cloud of dust blows up. It it kind of wiggles around, and then it we lose it in the cloud of of dust, and then it it disappears. Um, and both of them are like, "Look, I I don't think we we got it. I don't think it's dead." And uh, it all of a sudden bursts out of the top of the mountain, like way up. And this thing can move fast yeah. underground. It's I was incredible. not expecting that at all. Yeah, I was expecting it to kind of come right up from where it was just underground. Um, but it, it blasts through the mountain and so it's way up and it sprays again, this bile and because it's so high, it projects really far and takes out another, you know, dozen of them cops. Like we were getting picked off like womp rats out here, uh, which I don't know if that was a, a callback to Luke Skywalker picking off womp rats in his T-16 skyhopper. But anyway, they're getting picked off. Mando's like, we got to distract him. They both activate their jetpacks and fly up to the top of the mountain. That was such a cool scene. Yeah. They just both take off. They get like right at the top of the mountain, right near his head. It's still spewing out this liquid and they're mm-hmm. shooting it close range and it's having hardly any effect on it. Cobb's he's like, using, he's using his uh, disintegration uh, rounds yeah, on it too. And it's just bouncing, literally just bouncing off of it. Yeah. Um, it eventually he's like, we just need to keep shooting it. It eventually grabs its attention and it turns to like, you know, eat them. And in the, in the process d- dives back into the mountain as Mando and Cobb activate their jetpacks and fly back down to the group. And you know, they look back again, it's disappeared. They're waiting for it to come back out of the mountain. And it all of a sudden comes out behind them. It, I, I'm just amazed at how fast this thing can move mm-hmm. because it is huge and they also don't feel it. I don't know. It's, it's crazy. Um, and as it's coming towards them, Mando realizes that he's standing next to a, a Bantha loaded up full <laughs> of charges. And he's like, we, we kind of know immediately what he wants to do with it. Mm-hmm. He's like, I need to get this dragon to eat the bantha and I'll just blow the charges and explode it from the inside. You think about it, its weak spot is its belly, but it's even weaker spot is from inside of the dragon. Um, so he tells Cobb to get its attention to come towards them. And we get a great look at Cobb using Boba Fett's armor's missile. Mm-hmm. He like leans forward and, we, and it drops down that visor piece. That's always hanging up. That's like a, an antenna. We see that it's actually the, the, targeting reticule for the missile itself. It brings up a little screen that aims where he's going to shoot it. And then he launches the missile at the dragon. It kind of turns a bit, comes towards them. And Mando, not having any time to explain what his plan is, just the same way that uh, the its last owner <laughs> died, uh, Mando just smacks the, the jetpack and, and blasts Cobb away from danger. Mando's going to hold his ground with the Bantha to make sure that the dragon eats it to the point of, as it breaks away from its post, he grabs the rope and just holds onto it 
and Mando is swallowed whole with the Bantha standing in place. It's like, it's, it's pretty crazy. Uh, we cut to the child is worried, as is everybody else. <laughs> uh, it's the, quiet. The dust settles, it gets quiet. And then there's, you know, a light rumble, it grows. And all of a sudden the dragon bursts through the ground. Like electricity is like, all over the the dragon's head, his mouth opens. Mando flies out. He's obviously been shocking it with his shock stick, the same way he took out the saber tooth walrus from the first episode. And at, as soon as he emerges, he he grabs the detonation pack and explodes the the ordnance that inside the dragon, and it kind of just explodes and falls down, and it's dead. Everyone cheers. Mando lands. Um, it's a pretty epic landing. He's like <laughs> going away from it lands f- like not perfect, but fairly cool while holding his rifle and the detonation pack. And then like, as he hits the ground, the beast slams into the dirt behind him and throws up a cloud of dust. It's one of those epic explosions behind the hero kind of moments. And, uh, he got him. So the, the final scene here is, the Tuscan Raiders are salvaging the dragon meat. This was part of the arrangement that if the town pitched in to destroy the dragon, that they would leave the dragon meat and and its leftover carcass to the Raiders. They would not attack Mos Pelgo. And so so the Raiders are going through the carcass. One of them finds this perfect sphere, great pearl, and lifts it up. And it's huge. It's like the size of a basketball, which is much larger than it was in the KOTOR video game. You know, we're led to believe obviously that it could fit inside of a lightsaber and evidently not and, and be part of his power. I think this crystal. scale is much, much more believable. Yeah. I mean, if the crate dragon was that much bigger than a pearl that size seems a lot more reasonable. Yeah. And, oh, something that conveniently fits in my pocket for something the size of a building. Right. And that I could easily found in the <laughs> middle of the desert. Of course. Yeah. Um, there's some cool, I think we get an interesting use of that LED screen that's been mm-hmm. so common and what's kind of groundbreaking in the way they've done production here. This CGI of some of the dragon meat, it almost looks like some of the organs are still like pulsating. Like it's yeah, obviously whale, dead, but not got that whale blubber dead. kind of look to it. <clears throat> yeah. And the and it looks a little bit CGI. And then you can also, I feel like, see parts of the the large carcass that are on the screen behind the group that are working on some of the uh, realistic elements in the foreground, mm-hmm. and then um, and then this scene ends with Cobb bringing the armor. He's taken it off. He gives it to him. Um, Mando apologizes for hitting his jetpack. He's like, "Sorry, I didn't have time to explain." He's like, "No problem with me." Gives it back to him, and as he's walking away, you know, first he's like, "Look, it's been great working with you. I hope we get our paths cross again." Which you know, I feel like I do. I hope their paths cross again in yeah. the season. He's a, he's a great character. He seems like a, a pretty legit dude. He gives him the armor. He's like, uh, real quick, make sure you tell your people that I wasn't the one who broke that. <laughs> you were the one that hit the jetpack. Um, Which, by the way, if you're listening and you haven't gotten the reference, this is the same way that Han when they're on the uh, spa- the sand barge accidentally hits Boba Fett with a with a steel rod or something. And apparently it's sensitive enough to just get triggered by getting knocked in the back. Boba Fett launches prematurely with his uh 
rocket hits the sand barge and then falls into the uh, the uh, Sarlacc pit. So R.I.P. Boba. Um, and speaking of Boba, so that's the end <laughs> or of the... Or so we think. Yeah, so the, the outro to the episode is Mando, he loads up, he spins out on the bike and heads off into the distance. And I don't know if you noticed the the screen actually shifted to widescreen. It, it narrowed. I didn't notice that. Yeah, the black kind of narrows in from the tops mm-hmm. of the screen. And um, time passes a little bit because it was fairly bright when he's leaving the dragon. We get to the classic, iconic two-sun sunset um, that Tatooine experiences. Two-sun two two sunset? Two-sun set. Yeah. Double sunset? Double sunset. What does it mean? <laughs> uh, it's a binary sunset. Ah, uh, okay. Um, and as Mando's driving across screen in the foreground, we get a shot of the back of a person wearing robes who has two weapons over his shoulder. One is a rifle and one is like a Tuscan Raider staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. This is maybe a Tuscan Raider or whatever. And he turns around and it's... Tamara Morrison, the voice actor of of the Fets and all of the clones from the Clone Wars series, but and and played Jango Fett, right? Played Jango Fett in the live action episode two, but you know more importantly is also Boba Fett, who obviously is a clone of his father, so it looks exactly like him. It's him without his armor. His face is kind of disfigured. Yeah, obviously <laughs> some evidence. Sans of, armor and eyebrows. Yep. Um, it's our first look at Boba Fett in live action since the end of The Return of the Jedi when he was eaten. You know, it's funny how iconic of a character he is mm-hmm. in the lore of Star Wars, but most of his lore comes from books and things that came after the movies. He only is on screen for a total of like two minutes. I mean, we, should, yeah. we should clock it once, but he shows up for... <laughs> 30 seconds in Empire Strikes Back and he's in for a minute and a half in <laughs> Return of the Jedi. Um, but we see him, you know, partially disfigured. Mm-hmm. He turns to walk away and, and that's where we cut to black. You know, I think one thing I noticed or thought of here is that the same way that Mando in his Mandalorian armor is swallowed whole by this large desert monster mm-hmm. is able to emerge alive it kind of gives us like an in canon, an on screen reason for why Boba Fett could have been swallowed by a large desert monster and still made it out alive. I agree. It's a nice little out there. So that's where we end this episode. Um, as a great one. It's a long one. Yeah. It was a long one. There's a lot of, there were a lot of details, um, a lot more than we couldn't, couldn't really go over in this episode but it does fill in a lot of gaps for us that uh, we've been waiting for for a really long time, especially for Bubba No Brows, I mean, Boba Fett. It was interesting. You, When we were talking about the season two trailer or predictions for the season, you called out that you thought Cobb Vanth would be kind of a local mercenary who was mm-hmm. either pretending to be Boba Fett, uh, which wasn't quite accurate, but like that he was wearing Boba Fett's armor. and is how Yeah, that's actually in, in Legends, apparently. So like in the original Legends, his backstory doesn't differ too much in terms of the details. Like he was enslaved, but then he like in in the episode, he mentions he bought his freedom essentially by wearing the armor. Um, 
so it, it did seem like there was going to be a callback. But if there's Cobb Vanth, then that meant that Boba was not too far, far behind. And um, I think this sort of confirms that episode of The Gunslinger at the end of it, where we see and we hear uh, some footsteps with like spurs walking towards the body of um, what's her face? Not Mulan. That's the one. Yep. Um, it sort of now it sort of confirms that that was Boba Fett in yeah, the desert. As he sort of he turns towards camera and walks away, we get the same clank of the boots that we mm-hmm. heard at the end of of that episode. Yeah. So we asked a couple of you um, on our Instagram what were some things that you're eager to see in season two. You know, we didn't see any of them here in this episode yet, but some of you said you're excited to learn more about the child's backstory which, you know, that's all of us, obviously. Um, and in that same vein, you want to hear the child speak. That would be cool. Um, I don't, I don't, my guess is we probably won't, but it would be. <laughs> if it is, if it isn't, this is the way I'm going to be so disappointed. Oh, that would be awesome. Um, people are excited to see Bo-Katan and, and hear more about her. You know, Chris and I are obviously excited about Ahsoka Tano showing up mm-hmm. at some point. Um, something that, we we left the end of season one on this huge climax with Moff Gideon, and he's not in this episode at all. Um, so that's a really interesting take um, on the show so far is that Mando leaves Navarro and so far is not has not been tracked by Moff Gideon. So well, it'll be interesting to see how long it takes for him to make an appearance back in in the show. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, he will definitely come come back, and I have a feeling he's going to come back in full force. He yeah. has too too much. I I guess um, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but like he has a reputation, like the the type of he's like a super villain, but he's, he's too like a refined. Epic. He's yeah, he's like a refined super villain. He's going to do it the uh, the old fashioned em- empirical way with you know with all his foot soldiers and toys and, and stuff like that. And we saw that in the trailer. Yeah, that there is definitely going to be clashes with with stormtroopers and tie fighters and stuff like that so yeah um whenever that happens moff gideon is definitely going to be uh not too far behind yeah and now that we see boba fett like it's confirmed i feel like this next episode personally um i think the next episode we're going to have direct involvement with boba fett versus the mandalorian like is boba now going to get his armor back yeah it'll be interesting if he Sort of because we don't see Mando leave Tatooine, we just see him on his way back to Mos Eisley. Right. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see if if um, if Boba kind of cuts him off before he leaves, and we get that connection before he leaves the planet, or if that gets pushed further on <laughs> down the, the season and and doesn't happen for another few episodes. <sighs> the way to tease us, man. What was uh, what was your favorite part of the episode? Um, I mean, I think it was. I love. KOTOR is probably my favorite video game behind Halo. And so to see some of those elements emerge into the story of, of the Mandalorian was super cool. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's such an epic takedown of this huge beast. Um, it was pretty cool. Yeah. My, I loved how this episode, despite the fact that it had so many different themes and different genres that were played, it still didn't feel saturated like it went from western to jurassic park to jaws to 
like Final Fantasy Monster Hunter style episode where and and scale and the use of scale in this episode was very very well done how they were filming like these these large flat scenes and then the giant uh uh crate dragon layer and I layer is definitely the word I would use to describe it um and then the action sequence with all the people fighting it like the sense of scale just you didn't feel lost in in the episode you felt it felt like a fitting conclusion. Yeah. And I think although the show, the episode itself was a little bit slow in terms of like story progression, like not, not a whole lot happened in terms of like the, the mission that he was set on by the armorer, you know, he, he right. went to seek out Mandalorians and all he really did in this episode was find a set of Mandalorian armor. Right. We did get a little bit of indication of, you know, with Boba Fett there and, you know, just some more expansion of our knowledge of Tatooine and some things. So I think it was mm-hmm. kind of slow overall, but, you know, just a very interesting take. And I think even finding out at the beginning with Korgoresh and the fact that he is another person who's been hunting down Mandalorians, it, it may come into play later that there's a lot of this. Yeah, I didn't know, think about that. The echoing of the, you are the hunter and the prey kind mm-hmm. of thing that, you know, he may end up finding more people who are hunting him as well. I, I definitely felt this episode was more like a side quest. And I was kind of disappointed that it was the first episode after waiting for so long of the season, of the new season. But we would just have to trust the process and, and see what the rest of the story takes us. Well, that's all for this episode. Thank you all for joining us. If you like this episode or if you like our show in general, please subscribe, share. And the most important thing you can do for us is leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps our show get more visible in the rankings and it helps more people be able to listen to us. Also, please follow us on Instagram at Death Watch Podcast. Uh, you can tweet us at Death Watch Cast. And there's also the Magic Mail app. If you have any comments or have any suggestions or if there's anything that we omitted for uh, in this episode or anything you want to hear in upcoming episodes, you can email us at deathwatchpodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to feature it in our future episodes. And be sure to check us out on Instagram. We post a lot of engagement out there. We'll ask questions and give you an opportunity to give us feedback to, to feature on the show. So thanks for listening. This is the way. This is the way.